when I was preparing uh, this sermon, <clears throat> which I did a couple of weeks ago, I was having one of those weeks where I was just in it. And I'm not talking about like in it to win it. I'm talking about being overwhelmed, you know, fighting against the tidal wave of life and feeling like I was losing. It was a couple of days before our vacation and I was dealing with this thing and that thing and this other thing and my heart was tired and my mind was fragmented. I oversee our youth football program and almost sent out a disastrous email and it was about that time I knew I was ready for vacation. And, and you might know that feeling this morning. Well, true to form, as often happens to me as a pastor, I began thumbing through this story found in Acts 23, a story where Paul himself is in it. The Holy Spirit had revealed to Paul that trouble, persecution, imprisonment all lay ahead as he returns to the city of Jerusalem. And it's really in contrast of what's going on here, of what we highly prize here in American culture. I mean, in American culture, we're obsessed with success. And what that often means is that we herald stories of success. You know what I'm talking about, the, the rags to riches sort of story, the big transformative ideas, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Or, on the other hand, we're captivated by stories of failure. <laughs> There's this morbidity, you know, to American culture, right? It's Dateline on Friday night. <laughs> it's the reason why true crime is the most popular podcast genre on the market. We love reading extensive articles about the downfall of the powerful. And it's interesting as we come to the Bible, and we come to life with God, we see that, that life with God doesn't work out this way. When we're doing life with God, we don't view success and failure in these sorts of American terms. Instead, Jesus gives us a completely different sort of paradigm. We know that Luke, the author of Acts, is writing a historical account of the early church for a patron named Theophilus. And it's probable that Theophilus commissioned Luke for this writing because Theophilus himself was spiritually curious. He was trying to figure out his own beliefs. And he was wealthy enough to commission Luke as a historian to write him a personal account of what happened with Jesus in the early church, an account that we now share. And the whole story of Acts, it's, it's filled with ups and downs. It's like any great adventure tale found in Greco-Roman literature, things like the Odyssey. But the overall trend has been upward in the church. God is transforming lives of both Jews and Gentiles. Church communities are springing up all over the Mediterranean. People are experiencing healing. The question is, where will this story end? Remember the outline of Acts that Jesus gave in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. His good news would transform the city of Jerusalem, the surrounding countryside of Judea and Samaria, and even the ends of the earth, specifically the city of Rome. And if we take on an American view of success, this story should end in great triumph. 
you know, these fledgling church communities would become mega churches. You know, Paul and Luke, those sorts of biblical authors would become best-selling writers in the empire. Politicians would begin courting the favor of Christians. This is how we think about success in America. I was reminded of this when we were driving through Florida. There's a, uh, a, a newish gas station called Bucky's. I don't know if you're familiar with it. If you've ever been to a Bucky's, I think it's like a southern thing. It was, it was like created in Texas. And so everything in Texas, it's like you don't, it's not just enough to make it big. You've got to make it way big. And so you pull into Bucky's, there's like a thousand people at this gas station. A hundred gas pumps, brisket, clothing items, toasted almonds, all snacks, all sorts, really clean restrooms, all sorts of things. It's just, it's the epitome of America. And so Luke's writing this story, and in the American lens, we expect that the story would play out of this triumphant success. But here's a spoiler alert. The story of Acts ends with Paul in prison. And Acts chapter 23 is the beginning of the end. It's almost as if Paul is asking Theophilus, don't you want a faith like this that delivers you into prison? Wouldn't this be great? But I think what we begin to see here is why Christianity is so compelling. It's not a success story as our culture would necessarily define it, but it's also not like a Friday night dateline tragedy that incites morbid curiosity. It's something altogether different. And what we see here in terms of a big idea is that when you give your life to Jesus, your circumstances don't define you. Instead, Jesus is sovereignly using your circumstances to transform you. That's what we want to look at this morning. And let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that you've given us your story in the whole of Scripture and specifically of Acts here in the church. We pray now, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask this in your matchless name. Amen. Well, as I said, uh, Paul was in it. And we see this going back to chapter 22. A group of Jews accused Paul of bringing Gentiles into the temple, presumably perhaps into the inner parts of the temple. And the tensions were so high that a wild riot broke out around the temple that had to be put down by Roman authorities. And there's this figure, this Roman authority figure called the Tribune. He's basically the captain of this military guard. He arrests Paul and he brings him to safely, safety in the garrison's barracks. It was kind of like this moment of like, whoa, that got out of hand really quick type situation. And Paul asks the Tribune if he can address the crowd. And somehow the crowd calms down. He calmed down enough to listen to Paul. Paul speaks to them in their native language of Hebrew. And Paul bears witness to how God's grace has transformed his life. And the crowd listens to Paul up until a point. Up until the point in which he tells them that, that God came and spoke to him in a dream. And told Paul to leave the holy Jewish city of Jerusalem and go and share the good news of Jesus with the Gentiles. 
And this riot breaks out. There's this energy in the crowd. And this energy, it arises from the whole of biblical history. You know, on the one hand, God chose the Jewish people to bring salvation to the whole world. It was promised in God's covenant with Abraham. But on the other hand, most nations that they encountered all through the centuries wanted to enslave the Jews rather than listen to them. And so by the time we arrive in the first century, the tension of Jews and Gentiles is thick. And Jews knew at the core of their being that being governed by Gentiles, that wasn't supposed to be their destiny. That didn't align with the promises of God. And meanwhile, the Roman government was none too happy about these constant Jewish rebellions that would pop up. So in summary, what's happening here in Acts chapter 22 and 23 is representative of what's been happening in the whole of biblical history. This Roman tribune, he doesn't quite understand what all the fuss is about. It's some issue of of Jewish theology. So he just kind of complies and he orders Paul to be flogged without due process which is how the marginalized Jewish population was normally treated. But Paul is a different sort of individual. He's not some drifter in the empire, but he's a genuine Roman citizen with rights, and he makes that known. So the tribune is taken aback, and he orders an initial inquiry. All of a sudden, due process becomes important. And he orders this initial inquiry to be held by the Jewish temple leadership also known as the Sanhedrin. So that's where we pick up the story in verse 1 of chapter 23. And there Luke writes, while Paul was looking intently at the council, he said, brothers, up to this day I have lived my life with a clear conscience before God. And all of a sudden, Ananias, the high priest of the temple, he orders Paul to be struck across the face. And as we read and as we saw, Paul doesn't take too kindly to that sort of reaction. He says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting there to judge me according to the law? And yet in violation of the law, you order me to be struck? The office of the high priest in the first century, it certainly was was central to the preservation of Jewish faith and culture. But that office was also an appointment of the Roman government. You can kind of see there's a conflict of interest here. Well, the council that surrounds Ananias, they cry out to Paul, don't you know who you're talking to? This is the high priest. To which Paul oddly replies, oh, I didn't realize This perhaps reveals two things. First, it reveals perhaps something about Paul. At the beginning of Acts, Paul was this rising star in Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. But 20 years has now passed since that time. He was probably out of the loop of what was politically going on at the center of Jerusalem. Second, I think it reveals something about the integrity of the leadership at the temple. Namely, that it was lacking There doesn't seem to be anything about Ananias that commands respect. His presence, his voice, his response, none of these things give any indication that this is a man walking with God. 
And so here Paul finds himself in it. Right in the thick of it. And ever so shrewdly, he looks around the room and notes that the council is made up of two theological parties, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. It's kind of like the Republicans and the Democrats. And Paul knows just the button to push in this moment. These two parties were different in several ways, one of which was their view of the resurrection of the dead at the end of time amongst God's people. And so shrewdly, Paul says that he's really on trial because of his belief in the resurrection. And so this just incites this debate amongst the temple leadership. It's a firestorm. And in the end, it causes the Pharisee faction to actually take Paul's side against the Sadducee. And so the whole trial implodes. Everything unravels. And Paul is taken back to the military barracks. Paul barely escapes what probably would have been his death. And maybe you know that feeling of barely escaping something in the 11th hour. Maybe there's, there's layoffs at your company on Friday and your name doesn't get called. Maybe it's something to do with a financial re- reality going on in your life. The challenges that you're facing as a parent, the project that isn't working out, the confounding nature of a health issue. We all know that feeling where we feel like we're just barely hanging on by a thread. And if we were to take one more hit, it might all be over. And it's so easy in those moments to allow difficult circumstance to define us, to begin thinking, my suspicions are true. I'm a failure. I didn't have what it takes after all. All will be lost. I don't have hope. How in the world could things turn around? Maybe Paul was thinking some of those very things. And in verse 11, Luke writes that that night the Lord stood near him and said, Keep up your courage. For just as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must bear witness also in Rome. And those words of Jesus are not just meant for Paul, but they're meant for you and for me. Where Christianity is so different from Western culture is right here in the words of Jesus. Our natural inclination in the West when things become difficult is to turn inward, to dig a little deeper. And no doubt, there are some times and we're in the midst of circumstances that we just need, we do need to dig a little deeper. Like it just requires us putting shoulder to the plow. But if you think that the ultimate solution is inward, one of two things will happen. On the one hand, you will be given to despair. You will be led to further despair because despite your best efforts, there are many circumstances in life that are well beyond our control. On the other hand, you might be led to delusion. That one time in the 11th hour, you might just pull it off. 
But what about the next time? And the next time? And the next time? And the next time? And so these words of Jesus to Paul and to us, they're wholly other. When Jesus says, keep up your courage, that whole phrase is one word in the original Greek. And it literally means, be of good cheer. Take comfort. What a crazy thing for Jesus to say. And it's Paul hanging on by a thread in prison. He goes on to cast this vision. Paul, you will testify for me in Jerusalem and then also in Rome. Jesus is assuring Paul that the mission will reach its end. It will be complete. But it's not going to be easy. And this is so different from our, our cultural sensibilities here in the West. Because we want success and we want success to come easy in life. And this is another difference that we find in the gospel. Amidst difficult circumstance, what is Paul to do? He is to testify, to bear witness. To what? Well, in the West, a figure like Paul would successfully navigate these sorts of difficult circumstances in life and career and go on to make social media posts and write a New York Times bestseller celebrating his victory in his life. But here, Paul is being reminded of something else. To testify not to his own glory, but to testify to the glory of Jesus. To testify to the victory of Jesus. And that's way more powerful. I think that we believe in these kind of death to life, rags to riches stories in American culture because there is something God-given in the human soul that we know that's how life ought to be. That that's our expectation. And if you're here this morning trying to figure out your spiritual journey, I would, I would invite you to consider that reality. That, that we have this instinct knowledge that life isn't as it should be. Through the words of Jesus, Paul is being reminded that in his faith in Jesus, his life is bound up in Jesus. That whatever is true of Jesus is now going to be true for Paul. That just as Jesus suffered, Paul will suffer. But just as Jesus was resurrected unto eternal life, so too Paul will experience resurrection. The only human being who has ever truly defeated sin and death, Jesus, then ascended to heaven at the right hand of God the Father, where he now rules over all circumstance. And we sung about that earlier. And spiritually speaking, Paul is seated there too. And if you look to Jesus as your Lord and Savior this morning, you too are seated there in that heavenly place. In Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, he states this explicitly. He writes, by grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
So if you want to become a more durable and enduring person in life, don't look inward. Look upward. Find your life in Christ. And you will discover that circumstance can never truly yield defeat. And as you are seated with Christ, you will be able to view life differently. You will be able to see life from the perspective of Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of God the Father. That whatever life throws at us, that God sovereignly has the ability to use it for his purposes, which is the renewal of all things. As crazy as these words of Jesus sound, this is why Jesus tells Paul and tells us, take courage, cheer up, be comforted, because what happened to Jesus will happen to us. It's how God is saving the world. Thomas Cole is an artist who was the founder of the Hudson River School, an American art movement that flourished in the mid-19th century that was focused on realistic and detailed portrayals of nature, but also with a hint of romanticism. And in 1842, Cole produced a four-panel series entitled The Voyage of Life. And I want to walk through each panel on the slideshow but you're not going to be able to see this clearly and in, in, in detail. So I encourage you to go home and, and look it up. You can see it really clearly online. The first panel is entitled Childhood. And in it, we see a small child on a boat emerging from a cave, representing the mysterious origins of life. And the lush landscape represents the shalom or the peace of childhood. And the child is safely gliding along this river accompanied by his guardian angel in the back of the boat. And there's a figure at the prow holding an hourglass representing time. Panel number two, Cole entitled Youth. And the child is now emerging from childhood, making that transition into adulthood. And he's leaning into the future, almost a mirror image of the figure on the prow. The safe confines of childhood are being left behind as the child moves into a distant and faraway future. And he has his hand on the boat's tiller, controlling his life. And he's heading towards an almost dream-like city that represents his enthusiasm, his ambitions, his dreams for life. And it's almost as if he's bidding his guardian angel goodbye. He's got it all on his own. Panel number three is entitled Manhood. There's no more pie-in-the-sky dreams anymore. Instead, the sky is dark and ominous. In the foreground, representing the flow of life, the figure is navigating this river in a, a set of treacherous rapids. The shoreline is covered in sharp rock and a gnarled tree. The man is no longer controlling the tiller and no longer leaning into the future. Instead, he's down on his knees in prayer. This is midlife crisis right here. In the distance, though, there is the hope of calm waters. And his guardian angel seems far away, but is still vigilant in the sky. 
Panel number four, old age. He has reached calm waters, a serene existence. Both the hourglass in the front of the boat and the tiller in the back are gone. The man has his hands open in gratitude. His guardian angel is once again close at hand, pointing him toward a future in heaven. Thomas Cole writes, the chains of corporeal existence are falling away and already the mind has glimpses of immortal life. And these four panels, there's a great deal to reflect on. Now, for example, my mentor says that raising teenagers is like navigating rapids of a river. The key is just not to stand up in the boat. You'll be fine. You'll make it in the end. And here's what I think is most important for our purposes this morning. Besides the man, there is one other figure present in all four panels. And that was the angel. While the man's naivete gave way to idealism, and idealism gave way to stress, eventually the man finds himself in a posture of gratitude because throughout his life, God never left him. God never forsook him. God was always there, even when the man couldn't recognize it. Paul's deliverance in Acts 23 is like this. It's not miraculous. It's actually circumstantial. You see this in a couple of ways. First of all, in verse 12 through 22, Paul's nephew, by the way, did you know that Paul had a sister? She lives in Jerusalem there, evidently. She sends her nephew over to visit Paul in this Roman garrison, this prison. Paul's nephew happens to be just in the right place at just the right time, And over here is this potential assassination plot that is brewing amongst the temple of leadership, amongst the temple leadership. And he goes to Paul and he relays what's going on. And Paul sends him back to the tribune to report, to make a report because the tribune was bound by Roman law to protect Paul. Secondly, we see this in verse 23 through 34 that the tribune relocates Paul under Roman protection to another province called Caesarea where his trial will go on under the authority of another figure called Felix, the governor there. And so in Acts 23, what was seemingly a tragedy actually becomes a comedy. A little boy subverts all the authority of the temple the most powerful leaders in all of Jewish society. And the government that took the life of Jesus now protects the mission of Jesus. What is the irony here? This is the victory of Christ making its way circumstantially into the world. Paul is seated with Jesus through faith at the right hand of God. And it's through the writing of Luke that we get this perspective. So how does this change our life this week? I'm reminded of the words of writer and musician Andrew Peterson in his book, The God of the Garden. He writes this, trees need to be still in order to grow. 
we need to be still in order to see that God's work in us and around us is often slow and quiet, patient and steady. Slow and quiet, patient and steady. I love that. It's a wonderful image, and it's why we named this church after a tree. And a big part of following Jesus is slowing down so that you can pay attention to what God is doing in your life and in the world around you. When you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places, you gain perspective. And how great does our culture need this right now? So no matter how you might find yourself in it this morning, when you are seated with Christ, you will find forgiveness for your failure. You will find the strength to keep going, to work harder, and to endure. And you will discover the peace that surpasses all understanding. So keep up your courage. Be of good cheer and take comfort. Let me pray. Grant us, O Lord, we pray, the Spirit to think and to do always those things that are right, that we he can do, who can do no good thing apart from you may by you be enabled to live according to your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.